0: You can chase those goals, but if the business is becoming more and more dependent on you, each stride you take towards them, the less valuable your business is going to be to an acquirer.
1: Hey, podcast listener. Even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out TropicalMBA.com. Happy Thursday morning. Welcome back to the podcast, Boss Man. Hey there. What's going on? Another busy week in TMBA land. We'll put the news updates off, maybe talk about some things at the end of the episode, but today talking about one of our all-time favorite topics which is building businesses for the sale and designing your eventual exit, you know, at the beginning or along the way, something we talk about all the time even though we don't intend to sell, it's worth thinking about and on today's episode Ian we've invited John Warlow onto the program who's an expert on these topics and we'll talk to him, but I just wanted to run a few ideas by I had to you about today's episode and put them out there for discussion. One of the things that really struck me about this this conversation today is so many of us build cash flows for ourselves. We build like we know we can pick up the phone, pay the rent, put some money in the bank, live a good life, you know, have more freedom than we would, you know, working for somebody else maybe. Yeah. And then a lot of us get turned onto this like lifestyle business idea and it's like, man, I could be a little bit more clever, build an asset, build some cash flows that don't require a lot of my time that are quite automated. And now all of a sudden I'm optimizing for multiple currencies and not just money in my bank account as soon as possible. And we sort of move up like the meta levels a little bit more. You know, that's more or less the category me and you have been in the last 10 years. And there's this next category, Ian, which is like more meta. And it's more chess versus checkers. And it's kind of like this idea of how much of what you're building is valuable to others and in which way is it valuable to others in other words like thinking about your business's value your cash flow's value thinking about selling that value rather than just thinking about picking up the phone and selling the next product to a customer and that's really i think the the category of thinking we're going to explore in today's episode
2: yeah Dan i think the startup community is really good at this especially like venture back companies they're really good at uh seeing this It's like when we sold our business, we're kind of told it was somewhere between two and four X multiple. And it wasn't like a strategic acquisition. It was just like, this is what it's worth. If you bail out now to somebody else, they'll have to pay about, I think it was around three is what we sold our business for, three-time multiple, our product business. For those of you just
1: tuning in, about six years ago, Ian and I sold a multi-million dollar business. And we did one of our all time favorite episodes on that, listeners' favorite episodes, you can check it out, tropicalmba.com slash sold. And, you know, we've basically been processing that exit over the past half a decade. You know, we wrote a book about it called Before the Exit. We've spoken with lots of people like today's guests. We've seen many of our friends go through this process. And so yeah, this is a constant theme of our strategic conversations and just thinking about the next things that we're building.
2: And as it relates to like how do we get a bigger multiple? Too. So it's like, what are the things that that are required to have a 10x or a 20x or whatever, a huge exit, if that's your goal? But I'll say this, Dan, it's interesting since we have sold our business. I feel like I've tried to talk more people into not selling their businesses. It's become more clear to me like which businesses are worth selling. Which might sound kind of strange, but it's like, I wouldn't even call it like an intuition. I should probably write down what this is, but essentially it's this: if you're in a position to like get out. And whatever you're doing isn't sustainable, I'm always like, get out. <laughs> I'm like, wow, man, congratulations. Like, that's not gonna last now, get out. <laughs> so, that's one scenario in which you should sell. But I feel like I talk to more people these days where I'm like, oh man, you should hold indefinitely because you've got a good cash flow going there. And it's something that you and I discuss a lot, which is like the value of cash flow on a monthly or yearly basis versus the one time pop. And the one-time pop is what we did when we sold our business, and we had great cash flow before that. But it's interesting because the one-time pop, eventually it runs out.
1: One of the interesting things of the dynamics between a cash flow and a cash pile, if you sell your business based on EBITDA, which is a technical term and... I have to look up the definition every time. It's earnings before interest, taxes, and amortization. It's essentially net profit. You know, you're getting your profit forwarded to you by a three times multiple. Say for example, you know, if you're selling your business based on that financial framework, you by definition like can't afford your business, right? Like you don't have enough cash to buy the asset
2: that you just built. Which is why it's appealing a lot of times to sell, Dan. Because uh, you think like, wow, when am I ever going to get this amount of money? The truth is, if you wait three years, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. if it's a 3x multiple, just hold on. <laughs> <laughs> just hold on.
1: Honestly, Ian, you know, me and you both in our own ways, were a little bit underwhelmed by the results of our first exit. And you know, it's like you work really hard for a very long time to build an asset, then you get sick of it. And then you sell it for, you know, what is three times income, a little bit of a lackluster episode. We've certainly been trying to build and adjusting for that. One of the takeaways that you know I think is clear for both of us is we just don't want to do that again. So let's try to improve <laughs> the next time around. That's what today's episode is all about is considering you know, the ends we're all building for as we work day in, day out on growing valuable businesses. All right, Ian, we'll circle back at the end to share some closing thoughts. Of course, we've written a book on the topic as has today's guest. So there's just so much to cover. So let's get into today's guest. John has sold four businesses, but also interviewed hundreds of founders who've done so. He's the author of a trilogy of books on this topic, including Built to Sell, The Automatic Customer, and most recently, The Art of Selling Your Business. Why do you do this? You don't need to. You've exited <laughs> a bunch of businesses. You've exited four businesses. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. I, you know, I guess I just get pissed off every time I hear about some other private equity group that has bought a business for kind of pennies on the dollar, and I just think that is a complete crime. And so, everything that I do is sort of motivated by how do you kind of get a fair deal when you go to sell your company?
1: Did you? Get an unfair deal when you sold your businesses.
0: Yeah, I mean, lots of bad experiences. I had a small marketing agency and I was exhibiting at a trade show and a guy came up to me really outgoing and and started kind of talking to me about how like how we should partner together. And I was like, What what are you talking about? Like, what a trade show. What do you want? I'm like, why do you want to partner with me? So finally I said, like, what do you have in mind? He's like, I want to buy your company. I'm like, what you don't know anything about my company He's like, no, no, we can build you know stronger together, blah, blah blah and anyways, long story short, I got underneath this quote unquote offer and it was basically to exchange my shares with his shares so that he would have the majority ownership, and I wouldn't get any cash out of the deal, but he would effectively have control and have all of our customers and it was like the crappiest deal, like unknown to man but I mean, I could tell that he'd done this so many times that he was just—he was just a pro at it. There's dozens of other similar stories where, and some where I didn't recognize the the gig, so to speak, and and got taken advantage of. So yeah, it, it it is personal on some level.
1: I've almost equated it to like you know getting married. It's something that's like has so much potential to change your life, and you don't get to practice it very often.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: we had a, a gentleman who did treated us that way. We call him deals Dimitri in re- retrospect. But this guy had probably done this like 50 times, but you know, he came in at the last day of the LOI with his accountant, and I'm sure you know how the story ends. Like offered what was still a huge sum of money, but way, way less than was fair. This was a process that was well-honed to rip entrepreneurs off at the point of sale. Is this the kind of thing you see regularly in your podcast guests?
0: All the time. So what you're referring to is retrading, right? So you sign a letter of intent, which is non-binding for either party. You give up negotiating leverage because you've got to sign a no-shop clause, meaning you can't continue to shop the company to anybody else. So you're effectively, to use your analogy, you're getting engaged, right? Yeah. And the acquirer knows this, right? And when you sign that no-shop clause, they have all the leverage, right? So they protract due diligence, 60 days, 90 days. And at the end, they show up and they're like, oh, yeah, we found something in diligence. We're going to drop by 20%. And you're completely at their mercy. I'm reminded of, a, of an interview I, g- I did recently with a guy named Arik Levy, most famous for a company, selling a company called Luxor One, but like very successful exit. And I said, how did you learn all this stuff? And he said, the hard way. He sold another company years earlier called Laundry Locker, where he did the classic. He had one acquisition offer. They agreed to a price. At the very end, the guy said, oh, you know, I can't really close at that price. How about 20% less? By that time, Levy had like kind of emotionally committed to the sale. And finally, they agree to a price less than he agreed to originally. And then the acquirer turns around and says, oh, by the way, we can't really come up with the money to buy your business. So we need you to lend us some of the money in a vendor financing deal. Levy learned the next time around to build competitive tension, to get multiple offers. In the second time he sold, he sold a company called Luxor, got five offers, played one off the other at the LOI stage, and ended up tripling what he got for his company.
1: Some of my best friends in the world are business brokers, and they perform a valuable part of this service. But one of the things that was very hard for me to learn, given how I was speaking with my broker all the time, is that he wasn't actually on my side in the way the transaction was set up, he was on the side of the deal. Things like competitive tension, I realized, or I'm guessing in, in my case, wasn't a good idea for the broker to create because they wanted to create a happy pool of buyers. And that was essentially what the broker's value proposition in the marketplace was. Are there brokerages out there that are like purely on the entrepreneurial side? Or how do people go about creating that? tension. I found brokers are trying to get deals done, so they use LOIs as a tool to get a deal done, but that's not necessarily in the favor of getting the best price for your business.
0: First of all, I would not sell a company without a rep, uh, an intermediary, an intermediary, a business broker on the lower end or an m a professional on the upper end. It's a huge financial transaction, usually the biggest of your life, and I wouldn't do it on your own. It's not a DIY event. That being said, I think you're absolutely right, Dan. I think there's a danger in hiring a broker who specializes in the industry you're in. When you think about the role of a broker, how does a broker make money? Well, they make money when you transact, when you sell your company. And if you're in a space where there are two or three acquirers for your type of business, and that broker makes his or her entire living off selling companies to those two or three acquirers, they can't fight for you they can't put their relationship with those two or three acquirers at risk to get the extra 10% for you because they need to go to the next guy and sell the next person's business to the same buyers. And that's the danger of using a broker who is an industry guru. See, if there are dozens of acquirers, that's fine. In fact, you'll probably be better served by an industry guru. If you are in a space where there's only two or three buyers, I think you'd actually be better served by an agnostic broker, someone who just sells companies, not necessarily sells companies in your industry. The other thing that your question triggers for me, Dan, is the other side of the, the counterbalance is going to be an M&A attorney, a mergers and acquisitions lawyer. And that person is like, we refer to them as your blind side. You remember the old movie Blind Side with... Uh, oh, yeah. So your blind side is there to sort of protect your, whatever, the right-handed quarterback, the left tackle is there to be your protection. And an M&A professional is going to put the brakes on a deal, right? So if your broker is going to kind of gently nudge you to accept it, the M&A professional is going to like tap the brakes and i think deals get done when those two people respect each other and and can kind of be countermeasures to one another
1: if we could just talk about four or five crucial points about what to expect or plan for when building a business or even just at the beginning i found this stuff is really useful when you think about sort of the end game like that's a great way to start a business, I think, is is thinking about what sort of results or what success might look like. Let's talk about some things people can do that are listening today, things that they can consider in their own business strategy.
0: The big one is starting to think of your company as as a child you want to nurture into a full functioning adult. Okay. <laughs> Most people when they think about business, they think about, well, my goal is, you know, I want to reach a million dollars in revenue or Whatever. And I think those are all valuable aspirations. Yet it can often lead us to make decisions that are kind of chasing a hamster wheel or running on a treadmill. You can chase those goals, but if the business is becoming more and more dependent on you each stride you take towards them, the less valuable your business is going to be to an acquirer. So you've got to structure it so that it can somehow work without you. I'm reminded of a of a guy. The company is called Sales Benchmark Index, SBI. And the guy's name is Greg Alexander. He built up this sales benchmarking business basically from his boxer shorts at his kitchen table. He started out from nothing. And he structured it Over many years to function without him. So his obsession was, I need to get this business to run without me. So he hired senior people on his team. He didn't show up for any of the acquisition discussions that he eventually had. He brought in a CEO and he brought in partners to kind of run the business. He sold his $30 million consulting business for $162 million without an earnout. And an earnout, of course, is the the entrepreneur's enemy, right? It's where you have these goals to reach the golden handcuffs years into the future. I mean, I've never heard anybody get that far out. Most people can get that far out of the outer operations of their company, but to actually sell your company without ever meeting the buyer is like astonishing to me. What are some other things like I can imagine like a lot of folks listening to this?
1: They're running, say, a marketing agency and they're such a powerful sales lever in that organization that this idea of, you know, having the business depend less on them is a challenging thought experiment.
0: Yeah. I've done it, been there, bought the t shirt, so to speak. It's a big, it's a big challenge, right? In particular in a creative business, right? Where there you can't make it, you know, McDonald's of creativity. By definition, it's the opposite. Here's what I would say. I think what you've got to do is first really niche down to serving one type of customer. I'll give you an example. There's a guy named Darren Root based in Indiana who has an accounting practice. And accounting, very similar to marketing services, businesses are soft, they're intangible. It's like services, you're selling time, right? And Darren Root sold all kinds of different projects, right? He sold like, uh, you know, IT, obviously everything, accounting, audits, et cetera. And he was trying to figure out how does he get his business to thrive effectively without him personally doing the selling? And so he looked at his customers and he said, what are all my customers like? And he said, there's one group of customers. They were doctor's offices and dental practices any health practitioners. And they have a frustration because they have to hire back office managers to run the back office. But oftentimes, they actually are not a full-time job. So you end up having an employee who's sort of 70% utilized. And so Root said to these guys, these doctor's offices, look, we'll manage your back office. We'll kind of run the payroll. We'll do the accounting, the bookkeeping, the bank reconciliation. But when he combine them and productize them into something called the boss system, back office support system. It was a thing. It was a product. And he ultimately created a business offering the boss system and nothing else, which was something that could succeed without him doing the work. Yeah. I think it's interesting to see that end
1: game of, you know, I was once working for a production company who was looking to acquire other production services companies. And so we would sit there with these founders that had built these businesses over the course of a decade and they were looking to retire and get out and you know it was just so hard to imagine acquiring them because it was essentially an extension of this person's sales prowess. There's a bit of a tinge of sadness to it like he's trying to tell the story that this business is going to be okay without him, but we're not buying it on the other side of the table and he's going to have a hard time making his retirement out of it. He's going to have to keep running the company to continue to make the kind of money he's used to.
0: Yeah, and and he's got effectively a job, which is fine. It's a well-paid job, it may in fact allow you to be location independent, right? And that's great. I think the danger we run into is when we think we're building a business to sell and we reinvest all of our profits, all of our profits into the business And then we end up at the end of the the line, and there's really nothing to sell. That's where I think we run into
1: these sort of tragic stories. Yeah. To sort of combat this, you focus on a lot of things like productizing services. We talk about that all the time here. You also talk about the automatic customer a lot, which is subscriptions and recurring revenue.
0: So The Automatic Customer is a book I wrote a while ago. It's about how do you create recurring revenue in just about any industry. First of all, it has a huge impact, as you allude to, in the value of a business, right? So right now, security businesses are trading at about 75 cents for every dollar of installation revenue, you know, like they come wire up the keypads in your home or your office. They trade at about $2 for every dollar of monitoring revenue. Said another way that the recurring revenue is is roughly 3x more valuable than the installation revenue. And that, that trend is not just limited to security companies, it's virtually every business out there. I'm reminded of the guys who built H. Bloom. So H. Bloom started a company selling flowers. And flowers is a crappy business, right? Like you got to buy the flowers. They start (laughs) dying. Like the moment you cut them, they're, they're dying. Typical flower store in America throws out more than half of its inventory as a result. And it's also very lumpy, right? Mother's Day, Valentine's Day is when all the flowers are bought you know, it's expensive to get retail space because you got to have walk-in traffic. It's just, I mean, I could go on. a terrible, terrible business. But these two guys, Sanyu Panda and Brian Burkhardt said, okay, we want to sell flowers on subscription. The thing they did goes back to what we talked about earlier. They didn't try to create flower subscription for everybody who buys flowers, the wedding, the funeral, the graduate, like they didn't try to do that. And they realized There's also a segment of the market. They were high-end wealth management companies, high-end hotels and restaurants who buy flowers for their reception table. And so these guys set up this business and said, why don't we just sell a subscription to these hotels for flowers? Every two weeks, we'll come, we'll get rid of the old flowers and we'll bring in the new flowers. When I last talked to Panda and Burkhart, the average lifetime value of an H. Bloom subscriber was more than $4,000. <laughs> Meaning they make one sale to one hotel, and over the life of that hotel's business with them, they, they garner more than $4,000 worth of revenue.
1: This episode is brought to you by the wonderful people over at Service Provider Pro, or SPP, an agency dashboard for productized services. What could be more relevant for the audience of this episode? Look, if you want to sell services at any sort of scale, you need a system, all the way from signing up clients to project delivery. SPP gives you that system in a white-labeled client-facing portal for your agency, If you receive client inquiries about how their projects are going with Service Provider Pro, they can just log in and see all their orders, download their invoices, and manage their billing all in one place. It's the central source of truth for your team about the progress of your client work. They can see everything that's due, collaborate on orders, and send reports. It's all streamlined for selling and delivering services at scale, which I know we are all aiming to do. So let's scale it up. Many agencies have abandoned their expensive and clunky custom-built dashboards in favor of SPP and have grown past a million dollars in revenue with the help of this software. So do check out the platform over at SPP.co. That's SPP.co to learn more and see how it works. And a big shout out to the folks at SPP for sponsoring the TMBA pod and for being so amazing to work with. test this idea out on you. I wrote down here and I don't know why I wrote down how to escape the EBITDA trap. For so many of us, if you just like do the math on how hard it is to grow a business, how much of your life gets dedicated to it, like selling your business for three times EBITDA after 10 years growing it is kind of a buzzkill. This was really brought home to me by uh, I was hanging out with a gentleman five years ago and he's like, I was telling him about the book I was writing. He's like, well, I just sold my business for 50 million bucks. And what was hilarious to me is we had had all the same emotions, even though like he was many uh, multiples more, you know, all the kind of deep emotions that people feel after parting with their business, which is, you know, something uh, I know Bo Burlingham talks about a lot and I know you're familiar with his work. But when he told me his top line revenue figure, I was shocked because I was like, oh, you sell a business for 50 million. That's like what, maybe four or five times EBITDA. So it probably has this huge revenue figure. And no, not at all. And the reason was, is it was a SaaS product with subscribing customers that were valuable to the acquirer for other reasons. And also, the acquirer had different motivations than simply tabulating EBITDA. So I'm curious if you have thoughts on this idea of like, you know, what kind of companies do attract buyers who are willing to pay much more than just three times your earnings?
0: Yeah. What you're really referring to is a strategic acquirer as opposed to a financial buyer. So financial buyers will usually be buying your future stream of profit. So they project out using what's called a DCF calculation, discounted cash flow. They'll project out your future profit and they'll say, okay, we're willing to pay three times and maybe someone else is willing to pay four times earnings for your future profit. Great. That's a financial buyer. To your point, it's a relatively modest sort of exit. Good, but but not you know, the spectacular exit we talk about. The other acquirer is the strategic acquirer where they are effectively buying your business for what it's worth in their hands. And so what you're looking for out there in the marketplace is a company for whom they would be able to compete more aggressively or sell more of their products by owning your business. And I'm reminded of uh, Stephanie Breedlove in this case, a woman I interviewed on Built Cell Radio a while ago now, she built a $9 million payroll company. Not a big business, $9 million. Not an insignificant business, but but $9 million in revenue, 10,000 customers. And she looked out there and said, who would love to buy this business? Who would be strategic? And she quickly identified care.com. Love's niche was not just doing payroll. It was doing payroll for parents who had a nanny to pay. In fact, she's from your where you are right now, Dan, in Austin. She's an Austin-based company who decided to do payroll for parents who have a nanny to pay. Hmm. Nine billion bucks in revenue. And so she looked out there and said, who's out there? Care.com had 7 million subscribers. Most of whom were parents, right, who have a nanny to pay or a babysitter to pay. And so she went to Care.com and said, you should buy my business. And they looked at it and said, Yeah. This is like an incredible opportunity. And they offered her for a $9 million business, $40 million. So Breedlove says, well, you know, that's a really generous offer, but I think you're undervaluing what we bring to the table. And she ran the numbers and she, she said, look, you've got 7 million subscribers. 1% of them buys my payroll service. That's 70,000 customers that I mentioned were just 10,000 customers today. In other words, that's a business seven times their size. And then she said, well, what if 2%? or 5%. Anyways, long story short, she sold her 9 million dollar business for 54 million dollars. But I think it can be done by just about any anyone if you think about who's out there for whom your business would be much more valuable in their hands than it is in your hands. It feels like
1: you know, checkers is like building a good product for your customers. And then chess is also realizing that there's another game going on, which is like you're building a product as a company as well. There's this great article by Jason Cohen called Richard King. And I used it to formulate one of the thought experiments in, in my book about selling businesses. And we call it the lifestyle ladder. And it's this sort of idea that Money behaves non-linearly, like money in your personal bank account. So, like if you have zero dollars and you get twenty thousand dollars, it's like life-changing. But if you get another twenty thousand dollars, up to forty thousand, it, it doesn't really change your life that much. So the idea is that there's like these levels that you reach. And I don't know, like one of the uh, too long didn't read conclusions of this is like don't sell your company unless it's like done money, unless you have like a really clear idea of what you need with that money, like you've put too much time into it, kind of thing, and. I wonder if you have a perspective on that, but I first asked this a, a clear question: like, do you see like a number, at least for folks living in North America, that is like life changing money in the sense that financial questions are sort of shelved?
0: Yeah, I think it makes sense to have pull factors when you sell your company, and so I'm not sure. I totally agree with the notion that it has to be done money. But you definitely should, I think, have something you want to go do. One of my favorite interviews of of all time is this guy named Sean Oshman, who decided he wanted to live life on a sailboat. He was 39. He said, by my 40th birthday, I I want to live on a sailboat. And so he was living in landlocked Denver. He had an IT services company, which he sold for two to three times profit. Going back to your point earlier, not a spectacular exit, kind of a buzzkill for most of us. And I asked him, I said, what was that like? I mean, how do you feel about it in retrospect? He's like, I'm happy as a clam. Hmm. And I said, why? And I said, because I'm living on my sailboat. And that was my aspiration. So I think if you've got a really powerful kind of aspiration, what we refer to as pull factors, I think it can really minimize your obsession over getting the last nickel or the last dime from your company. I think that's one thing. And I think most of us, if we're honest, when we think about selling your companies, we're more push right where the push factors like we're frustrated by government intervention or or employees or regulation as much as i want to help you build the value of your company at the same time i think it's going to be way better if you've also got some pull factors some things you want to go do we also think about this thing called the freedom point and it sort of ties back to your comments around the Levels of of wealth, so to speak. The freedom point is the point at which the sale of your company would generate enough financial assets that you could live for the rest of your life with the lifestyle that you want, that you aspire to have. Right. And so I think what's interesting is a lot of business owners unconsciously crest the freedom point and just keep going right on by. And then something like a pandemic happens yes, and their business is compromised hugely and they wish they'd freed up some capital. I think this is absolutely
1: critical. We call it the freedom line. I borrowed that from Jason Cohen. This idea that the single most important thing is like this is like your financial life. This is the engine of it. And if it could deliver you freedom line money, you need to first identify where that is I know this is speculative, but
0: where do most people put it? (laughs) What we say practically is imagine what the income that you need Mm -hmm. to live the life that you want. So let's imagine, you know, whatever. Let's imagine that's 100 grand a year. It doesn't really matter what the number is, but let's imagine it's 100 grand a year. Most people have heard the 4% rule, and the 4% rule has been somewhat debated lately about whether it's enough or et cetera. But a four percent rule would apply would imply that you take what you need, hundred grand a year, and multiply it by twenty-five. A safer road to go is to multiply by thirty-three, which implies a three percent withdrawal rate. So there's three point three million dollars that you've got to accumulate in cash outside of the value of your home because you gotta live somewhere. And
1: outside of the value of all the fun things you want to do with spending, like a lot of people want to become an angel investor, for example.
0: Right. This is just to live your li- the lifestyle that you aspire to have. So, if it's a hundred grand, it's three point three million. If it's two hundred grand, it's six point six million, etc. So, I think that's practically how you can calculate it. And I think a lot of it depends on, do you want to live in a, on a beach hut in Thailand? It's going to be a whole lot less than if you want to live in a 12,000 square foot apartment in New York City. Yeah, 100%. You mentioned the guy in the sailboat who's so happy.
1: Have you, you know, this phenomenon that Bo first turned me on to and one I've experienced, have you noticed entrepreneurs
0: being sad
1: after they sell
0: their business? Absolutely. Like crushingly sad. In fact, the data point is something in the neighborhood of 74% of business owners say they regret their decision to sell one year after selling it. It's an indictment of the entire industry. So it's a big, big deal. We did a bunch of research on this and identified four major reasons business owners regret. We've already touched on one, and that is that they're all push and no pull.
1: Pain. Pain. Like the anxiety of having to worry about it is a big one too. Like you're just bored of being worried about it.
0: Yeah. Pull factors are things that you aspire to go do. So it could be writing a book, starting another business, starting a charity, traveling the world. And the more of those that you have and the more you can, like I think it's like, don't just say I want to travel. That's like a BS answer. Like
1: where do you want to travel? With whom? And by the way, like nine out of 10 of these pull things you can go do right now. So why aren't you doing it? Why don't you try it out? Like one yeah. of the other things I mentioned to founders is like, if you wanna like be away from your business so bad, like try
0: it out, just go away from it, <laughs> see what happens. Yeah. Like <laughs> See how it, it works, yeah. Yeah. One of the other things around why people regret their decision to sell, it comes back to how their employees are treated as part of the process. I'm reminded of a story I have a guy named Bobby Martin. Bobby built a great business. It was a $6 million research company. Actually, he and I were kind of peers when our research companies, I, I knew him sort of, we showed up at the same events and stuff. Anyways, Bobby built his company and got a beautiful acquisition offer. But the thing about Bobby was he really ran his company like a fraternity house. Like he hired his buddies. They partied on Friday nights. And he built this business and $6 million company, roughly 30 employees. When he gets an offer from Dunn and Bradstreet for, I'm going by memory, it's about 24 million bucks, big, big, big exit. And Bobby says, kind of like, where do I sign? And like, you know, obviously accepted <laughs> the deal only to very quickly end up regretting it because his employees were shocked. Many of whom he can treat as his family, his friends. They were devastated by this news and Bobby hadn't really thought through how he was going to tell them or you know how they were going to participate in this, et cetera. Anyways, long story short, he goes into a, a real state of depression. He shared with me in the podcast that he was estranged from his wife. It got really, really bad. And it was a couple of years later that he was able to reconcile in his own mind sort of some of the mistakes he, he made. He actually wrote a great book. I think it's called The Hockey Stick Principles, but he talks about this period in his life. But I'm always reminded of the importance of thinking through how you're going to deal with your employees. It's one of the first questions I get if I ever do an audience of of like a speaking engagement or whatever. Almost always one of the first questions is like, how do I tell my employees? It's a huge point of
1: anxiety on both sides of the deal that, you know, it's kind of hard to relate to if you're not going through the process, but it becomes a huge thing. And I even find buyers that, you know, start to have cold feet. The, a lot of their anxiety will focus on employees. You know, what's this person going to do? How they're going to take the news? Are they going to be as productive as they are under you? Sort of thing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the other ones is not feeling like you were fairly treated. You often get suckered into kind of a proprietary deal where you're dealing with one buyer and you kind of wake up at the end of the process, you've closed the sale and you think, oh my gosh, did I leave money on the table? And like, it can happen easily because someone says, hey, we're going to pay you a million bucks for your company or whatever the number is, doesn't matter. All of a sudden you're, you, you get that sense of validation and you're like, yes, where do I sign? That's amazing. And then a year later, you reflect back and think, man, did I, just, did I, leave, did I get taken? Did I leave money on the table? And I think that the secret to ensuring that that doesn't happen is you create some competitive tension. You basically create some, like a multiple buyer situation so that, as Arik Levy showed, you can create and, and know that there's four or five bidders at the table and that you can feel relatively confident that you know, you've got a market rate value for your company.
1: Regarding, it's just the idea of this LOI popped into my head. Like A lot of brokers, they don't want to do that. So do you just find the next broker or how does a seller have leverage in this situation? I didn't feel like I had any leverage to to create. Like, why couldn't multiple people have an LOI in with me? And we take the money when someone is ready to give us money. You know what I mean? Like,
0: (laughs) yeah, I mean... There's a structured process you want to go through, right? It starts with a teaser where you anonymously reveal a little bit about your information. They sign a non-disclosure agreement. Then they get the SIM, confidential information, which is like a deck about your company. And then you're driving them all towards an acquisition date or window where you're evaluating letters of intent. And again, most buyers are going to want to disrupt that process. They're going to want to go on their own timeframe because they know that if they're participating in some sort of auction, no matter what, how many participants there are, they're going to feel like they're going to end up having to overpay for a company. So I think the job of a great intermediary is to create that structure, is to make it all coalesce around a specific window where you are evaluating letters of intent. Otherwise, you're, you're into prop deal land where... The seller is just dealing with one buyer. And as Aric Levy found out in the uh, laundry locker case, it's almost a recipe for accepting less for your company and, and more punitive deal terms.
1: 100%. I just would never do that again. Just put my foot down right now, John. <laughs> I, would, I will absolutely you know, partner with a professional who can drive the process in my favor. I can't believe that I didn't bother to do it the first time around. <laughs>
0: I can't wait to learn more about that when uh, when I interview you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The final bit of the interview here, John. I want to, you know, you already wrote a book that's sort of like the one of the automatic go to reads built to sell. What was the reasoning behind writing the art of selling your business? What is the art of selling your business?
0: Yeah, so built to sell is about how do you build a valuable company, automatic customer. How do you accelerate the value through recurring revenue? This is really trying to finish off the trilogy with how do you harvest the value? And it's inspired by, I mentioned a couple of times during this interview, this podcast I do called Built to Sell Radio where I've interviewed some, I don't know, 300 entrepreneurs. And what I've come to learn is that most of the people I interview end up having a relatively average exit. Not a bad exit, but an average exit. And then there is this other cohort. These folks like Stephanie Breedlove, who have these sort of ridiculously big exits, ones that are sort of defy the typical valuation models in their industry. And so I was really just personally fascinated about, like what do these guys and gals know that other people don't? (laughs) And so I tried to kind of distill their key insights and their playbook, if you will, into a field guide for, for entrepreneurs to follow if they wanna punch above their weight when it comes to selling. Right now is a great time to sell. The interest rates are at an all-time low. And what that has done is created an entire army of private equity groups. Private equity groups essentially basically make their the economics of their model work through debt. They buy your company, they lever up your business with lots of debt, and then they flip it. And because they used a lot of debt, As long as they're able to increase the value of your business when they flip it, they make astronomical amounts of money. Now, there are lots of downsides to selling to a private equity group, but the good news is that there are a lot of them out there right now. And what you can do is use them as, A, really solid acquisition offers. B, you can often play one off the other. I think it's actually a good time, despite COVID and everything else that's going on. I've noticed this with the the FBA roll-ups, like
1: the private equity FBA roll-ups, that like their competitive advantage is realizing that the people growing these businesses like they don't want to go through a sales process. And so they're they're able to like basically simplify what well, often, you know, to sell a multi-million dollar business, it can take often longer than a year, right? That's not uncommon at all. And what I think companies like certain firms have realized like, hey, we can just offer these folks like two times EBITDA and, and like very clean package and like get out of here in a month kind of thing. That's really worked. A lot of people, founders appreciate that to the chagrin of people in the M&A
0: space. We just have to look at the last 12 months to to know that in a lot of businesses, in a lot of cases, businesses have taken this pandemic on the chin, right? Like they have borne the brunt. It's not the, the Facebook employee, you can work from home. It's a lot of small businesses, in particular service-based businesses have absolutely been crushed. And so many of them have now started to stabilize their businesses and have gotten back to a point that they were pre-pandemic and are like, I'm done, I'm out. I lived through 9-11, I lived through the GFC, the Great Financial Crisis, like the Great Recession, whatever you want to call it. And right. you're gonna give me two times ibadah. Here are the keys. Right. There's a lot of that going on right now. A lot of people are burnt out. Totally.
1: Ah, wow. I mean, this is a topic so near and dear to my heart. I feel like I'm a terrible interviewer for it. <laughs> Everything is so triggering around every corner. <laughs> Any parting shots? You know the the audience here. They all want to have a, a great
0: exit. Look, I mean, I think you've nailed half the battle already. I mean, if you're a location-independent company, you've probably figured out a lot of what it takes to build a company that can thrive without you. And that's really the definition of a sellable company, one that can thrive without the owner. And so, man, I I think you've nailed a big chunk of the hard part about building a valuable company. So more power to you. One of the things I want to say about that, John, is like,
1: I'm on my third company now, depending on how you count them. And there's almost always a way that I could go out and increase revenue faster. That's not repeatable by other people. There's always a way you can start burning up the phones and generating revenue. The question is, is that a system? Is that a product? Is it repeatable?
0: Can it be sold to somebody else? Couldn't agree more. I think you're absolutely right. The more you chase revenue for revenue's sake, the bigger and maybe profitable your business gets to some extent, but it's also not a valuable transferable asset. And I think every business that does that reaches a ceiling pretty quickly. It could be at 500,000 sales or a million in sales, 2 million in sales, where the founder just runs out of hours in the day. They're burnt out, they're stressed out, and they plateau. And so I think the way to punch above that plateau when you reach it is to really reconcile your list of products and services and ask yourself like, which ones are more dependent on me and which ones are less dependent on me? And getting out of the, the business lines and services lines where it really depends on you will give you a huge uptick in lifestyle, but it'll also start to improve the value of your company.
1: Shout out to John Warlow for coming by the show. You can find his trilogy of books and podcasts at builttosell.com. Bossman, as you know, John really knows his stuff and he focuses on businesses that are in and around our, our niche adjacent and so quite informative to get a sense for you know what our assets mean to the broader market, not just our customers. I think that's like a breakthrough idea, not just our own lifestyle, but the asset value of incumbent companies that are 5 to 20 times the size of our companies. So yeah, also if you're thinking about building a business with the sale in mind, which of course we advocate, uh, check out the show notes of this program and also a wonderful book by Bo Burlingham, which meant a lot to me. It's called Finish Big. Um, and also uh, going to be returning back to this topic in future episodes. A lot of exits going on out there. A lot of buy-ups, a lot of roll-ups, a lot of money A lot of funny money floating around right now, so certainly something we will revisit. And also want to give a a shout out to Service Provider Pro. Check them out at spp.co. They are lovely, lovely sponsors. Some parting shots here, boss man, on uh, the concept of selling your business.
2: I think I probably talk to more people that regret it than don't. Yeah. It's just something to note there. Another thing to note is, if you're selling your business today versus like when we sold our business and it wasn't that long ago, two thousand fifteen, there are so many more options now, which is nice. There's a lot more brokers out there. There's a lot more marketplaces. There's a lot more buyers. It's just a it's a more rich environment. Well, even Ian, there's a lot of like kind of. More traditional
1: M and A, like mergers and acquisitions, infrastructure type companies or sales companies are focused on our niche too, which is like this trend we've been talking about over the years. More and more, quote real business people are looking at our businesses as we're the next generation of real businesses. You know,
2: yeah, it's so funny. Like this company comes up, Sunbelt Business Brokers. They're like some national chain of business brokers. I don't know what their model is, but like. This is who I was looking at when we were selling our business, and now it looks completely ridiculous because they're they're definitely like a brick and mortar type operation that like you know brokers like pizza joints and stuff like that. But like those were (laughs) the options that were available back then. This was just like five years ago in 2015. (laughs) Like it was
1: ancient. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, one of the big things that there's so many touch points about this topic that are unresolved and ongoing. I mean, me and you walk up to each other all the time just for fun and say like, "What's your walkaway number right now?" just to give ourselves a sense of, you know, what our optimistic numbers are, like where we think the market's at for different assets within our portfolio. I took that away. I take this idea of the freedom line as like more important than ever. You know, the too long didn't read version of our take on this is like, know your freedom line. Because part of the reason, you know, there's a lot of different reasons to regret selling a business. But one is like, You got to go do it all over again, right? Because you didn't get to that point where, you know, financial questions are shelved for a lifetime, which is, you know, the freedom line. And, you know, John picked up on that right away. He's seen that pattern. And I think that that's fascinating takeaway. One other thing is like really controlling this process, Ian. You know, we're so used to setting up marketing funnels and creating markets and demand and selling. And then you get to your, you know, the biggest transaction in your life and you kind of outsource it to somebody. And that's why I think this concept of like getting experienced sellers, advocates, people who can be in your corner. And the bottom line is I'll say something here, like a little naive Ian, but like my emotion at least says like, I will never sell a business again. That's not in a competitive sales process that I'm controlling. You know, like I, so reach out to all the strategic investors, everybody f- to whom my business is worth more to them than it is to me, letting them all know what the timeframes are, letting them all know when the bids are going to come in, all the LOIs are coming in. They're going to know about each other. And it's going to be a contest to you know pay the best price for this asset that's valuable to all these, these buyers. And I don't think anybody did anything wrong in our transaction. And I think it went down the way it probably needed to go down. But I don't want the kind of like spend years of my life building the kind of asset that there aren't going to be at least a few people in the world competing to buy that
2: asset. I hope we had to go through that so other people don't (laughs) and hear that message. But it's, it's so hard, Dan, as you know, to like start from ground zero and like have that kind of vision that you're going to build some kind of asset that's going to be strategically acquired for a better multiple. Yeah than if somebody was just buying your cash flow. It's it's really hard to do. Easier said than done. Yeah. It's definitely something that we're aiming for uh, the next time.
1: Really cool to have someone with a larger depth and breadth of experience on the topic than us. And yeah, I think we have given us plenty to talk about. So we'll be back on this topic with more coming down the pike. Thanks again for joining us on the pod. We'll be here next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Time.